Yeah, good morning. Uh, thanks, Matt, for having us on this uh, Crux interview panel. I'm Mark Henderson. I'm CEO of a company called Laramide Resources. We're listed in Toronto. We're also listed on uh, ASX and OTC Bulletin Board. Uh, we've got two very large development projects, uh, one in the United States, one in Australia. Uh, and we're very happy to see we're sort of in the the uh, late stages now of, of development and with a better environment coming on, we think uh, it's an ideal time now for, for companies like ours to sort of get moving more rapidly to sort of filling this massive uh, deficit in supply that everyone seems to have a consensus now that is building and probably is going to be here for the next decade or so. So it's a very good time to be looking at uranium companies in general, and we think our company specifically. I'm Ted O'Connor. I'm executive vice president with American Lithium. We have two uh, lithium projects, one in Peru and one in Nevada. But uh, I'm here to, to talk about our, our big uh, uranium project also in Peru, in southeastern Peru. It's a large resource, and, uh, you know, we're, we're dusting it off and, and pushing the Peruvian government to come up with some uh, export regulations. So uh, exciting times in, uh, in a country that has no, no other uranium resources or production currently. And I'm Chris Frosted, President and CEO of PurePoint Uranium. We're a uranium exploration company operating our 12 projects in Northern Saskatchewan. And like our other guests here, we're all quite excited about the, uh, the attitude towards uranium these days. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're gonna get there, but I can't not ask uh, Mark Henderson his view. Sabotage accusations being thrown around left, right and centre about Nord Stream 2. Who done it, Mark? <laughs> I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I want to go there, but I mean, the, the ramifications and the follow-on effects from this energy crisis market, which, you know, I've been on your ship, you know, your segments and show a bunch of times here, and I've been talking about it for a while, about this thing that's been kind of a slow wave rolling in, this energy crisis has been building and it's just gotten worse and worse. This sort of takes it to another level just because irrespective of who did it and why and everything else, the, the ability now to fix it and to fix the European gas problem is, is really, really gonna be difficult. Um, you know, there's only so much LNG you can get it, or so many molecules you can get in with LNG. I mean, you had a pipeline that obviously could have resolved the energy crisis pretty quickly there, and that, and now that won't. And I got to think that's going to put massive pressure on gas prices everywhere else, including America. So you know, we already have gas prices here at prices we haven't seen in a decade. So I just think this whole energy uh, crisis market rolls on, and this just made it worse. Well, it, it certainly it certainly does, and um, you know, the geopolitics involved with uranium and nuclear um, has been going for some time. Now, Ted, your, your big project, Makassani in, in Peru, you're going through a bit of a sticky time there yourself, aren't you, with the government? So are they, are they pro-mining? Are they pro-uranium? What, what are the problems you're facing? Well, uh, the problems seem to be more uh, government structural. The, the support at the, at the federal uh, We'll call it central government level is is there to for both uranium and lithium, two commodities that the country currently has doesn't produce, and and we're the only company that holds either of those resources, and so we're getting good support. It's the uh, the revolving door in the mining ministry. Uh, we've had six or seven mines ministers in the last uh, couple of years. Um, you know, it's really ground the, the permitting process to a halt. And so if you're a producer in the country, you're doing great. 
if you're an exploration stage company that wants to put some holes in the ground, it's been a, it's been a real struggle uh, exacerbated by COVID. Well, I think that's the same the world over in most jurisdictions. I'm not sure tier one jurisdictions exist anymore. And talking of which, Chris Frostad, um, you may be in the Athabasca Basin, you may think you get a free pass, but um, you've got Trudeau to contend with. How are things in Canada when you're, when you're looking out at the rest of the world? Well, yeah, I think I think what's what's different right now with 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 all the strife and and activity that's going on in the world, it, it's changed. Uh, it's it's actually heightened um, a, a lot of the a lot of the activity. That is to say that I think we we've always looked at nuclear and uranium globally in terms of supply and demand and where it's coming from. But uh, we've always recognized that geographically it doesn't work out that well. The people with uranium aren't necessarily the people who use uranium. So. Um, you know, Australia, Canada, Kazakhstan, sure, we've got lots of uranium, but uh, the people that need it, China, um, the United States, uh, what have you, they, they don't necessarily have those resources there. So now with, with a lot of this activity and a lot of these problems arising between countries and, and throughout the, uh, the pipeline, the, the whole fuel pipeline, that's now become another factor. We can't just rely on the, the amount of uranium there is in the world to run the amount of reactors around the world. Now we've got to be a lot more focused on where it's coming from and, and whether that supply is going to be, um, whether we've got surety in that supply. And I think Canada continues to, to you know, be fairly uh, open and neutral in terms of our, our availability to sell into most markets. Yeah, you make quite a good point there. The, the, the irony is not lost to me. You know, Australia, Kazakhstan and Canada without nuclear. Um, but they, 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 they sell a lot of uranium. Um, Mark, back, back, back to you here on, with regards to this, this, this U.S. attitude to you, 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 like us here in Europe, suffering from energy crises, costs going up at the pump, going up at home, disposable income, um, discretionary spend down. Um, it, it's, it's not a nice time to be, um, to, you know, to, to be running a, a household at the moment, but, you must be getting some signs of encouragement from the U.S. government. We had uh, Dr. Catherine Huff over here at the WNA a few weeks ago talk about the need to or the desire to double the amount of nuclear energy in the U.S. by 2050. How are they going to do that? I, I frankly hadn't heard that. I mean, there's obviously a, a very active debate about all things energy related in, in the U.S. and North America as well. But the the nuclear piece of the U.S. has been pretty stable at I don't know, 15% of electricity generation, something like that. And there's been a, you know, the industry starting with the utilities as well as the producers have, you know, gone to Washington to try and get various things happening. Going back to that whole 232 exercise on the producer level a few few years ago, that eventually morphed into there actually being legislation that was passed about creating a uranium reserve, which is kind of the equivalent of, a, of the SPR for, for, for uranium so that they'd have the inventory. Um, for whatever reason, the current administration has not actually put that into effect. It's up again for grabs every time there's a new bill that's running through Congress, including the one to just to keep the government alive, I think, which is today, they got to do some continuing resolution or something. And whether that makes it or not, I don't know. So there's a lot of talk about it. But the reality is in North America, and I would include Canada in that too, we're, we're fortunate in this energy crisis in that we have lots of molecules and we're going to be fine. It may be expensive, but we'll be fine. The, the bigger problem is really in other parts of the world. And I guess the issue for nuclear, when you want to put your hand up and say, hey, we can be part of the solution is it's easy to kick it down the road and say, oh, that's, you know, it's a 20 year thing. It's a long lead time. But, you know, had some of these governments done what they could have done 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about this now right now. 
Well, that's that's true. I think a big part of the conversation at WNA was the need for you know governments to kind of get out of the way of themselves with um, you know red red tape and licensing and permits and make, to allow this thing to happen quicker in half the time. But just want to stick on the US component, which is how does it, how do and the investors look, watching and listening to this want to want to understand that how do companies like you take advantage of what's happening there in the states? You know, um, for a start, you ask me specifically. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, I do think that I do think that what you need more is a sense that all of the political parties and everything get behind you, so that you don't have the frictions about bringing projects along, because it's, it's the permitting and the you know Ted talked about Peru and you know you've you it's a new thing being introduced into Peru, so the, you know the the anti nuclear people will get in there and there'll always be people that don't want the mining. And so you've got all those kind of frictions that, that happen as well. It really needs to, you really sort of need a consensus built deeply with the public that we sort of have to do this. I mean, the Americans did it before when they had an energy crisis in the seventies and they just kind of got on with it. And, you know, a hundred reactors showed up 10 years later and then you know, France, the same and Japan, the same, whether we get to that kind of thing again, I don't know, but, what's happening is focus is forcing people, the public to get educated in a hurry, which is great. I mean, so yeah, I think, you know, we're a patient, we're on uranium, we're patient. And so we sort of, we sort of, we wouldn't be here if we didn't think the public would get the, get the answer right in the end. And so I do think we're much closer to that day now than we were. Yeah. I, I think that when you, when you add in the, uh, the net zero component and any credible model that's out there, whether it's the UN economic commission for Europe, report that just came out uh, the, the the secretary you talked to from the from the from the US government uh, during the WNA she had a great presentation there and and every credible source says nuclear has to double to get to net zero by 2050 and if you add in potential hydrogen byproducts it, it could be tripled now, how we get there is 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 another story, but it's clear the need is there. Right. I mean, well, it is about it's about the energy return on capital invested. Um, absolutely, in terms of baseload, it, it it makes sense. The green component, it makes sense for sure. But I just want to stick with the kind of jurisdictional component, and you know, the U.S. has um, its nuclear policy, but I think you're. I guess if you're in Peru, you're hoping U.S. stands for us. You know, friends of the U.S. How how does an asset like yours get? Get itself um, a, a kind of buyer in the market or support in the support in the market, which will kind of influence Peru's attitude to it, given it's a kind of nascent industry over there. Yeah. So the the government has some some regulations in in draft form that were a combination of Peruvian legislation because they have a small research reactor, but they also uh, dealt with the the Canadian and U.S. governments to formulate the regulations because yes you can mine uranium yes you can produce uranium under current regulations but it's the whole piece of as far as the the regulatory system and people the infrastructure to regulate to export uh, uranium around the world to obviously united nations non-proliferation treaty people signatories uh, so peru's in the un they're founding member of the of the IAEA, uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. Sorry, uh, the 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 global regulatory uh, agency for for all things nuclear. So that's all in place. It's just a matter of the the, the regulations and uh, and with the help of the Canadian and U.S. governments, um, 
I, I believe it's hoped that that our uh, our products go to uh, uh, friendly jurisdictions. Right, and Chris, you, you, look at Athabasca Basin, renowned for its highest grades in the in the world, um, mining made easy, right? Um, but you you are in Canada. You have you know First Nations issues. You've got environmental issues. You've got permitting times and licensing times famously long. Do you see an do you see that changing anytime soon? It, given the environment we're in, will there be pressures on Canada to perhaps? You know, help speed things up or make things a little bit easier, or, or is it just is this is just the face of mining as it stands now? No, I think I think certainly, and a lot of it goes back to what Mark was saying about the the whole education piece. I mean, the the public is becoming more accepting and understanding of of nuclear power and where it comes from. I mean, yesterday Ontario announced that they're going to leave uh, our Pickering reactors open now for at least a, an extra year and maybe another thirty. And again, the People against that come out of the woodwork, but their arguments don't sound as solid as they might have 10 years ago. They're not as scary as they were 10 years ago, and uh, and they're not getting the support they did. So I think I think the education piece is huge, and the and the fact that the population now understands it more, they understand the the issues of it more, and the safety issues, and and. Uh, uh, and the fuel issues. So that, that certainly helps everything. But, you know, Canada is, is, you know, we've always been a country that digs stuff up and sells it to the rest of the world. And uh, I think there, there are a lot of conversations going on now to make, to make that easier, be they in Europe or England or, or, or anywhere, to make sure that we can, you know, we've got those, those uh, uh, commitments to provide resources and in the way of energy, be it, be it oil and gas or, or uranium or whatnot, and, and which then backs up onto us. That means we've got to start making it available quicker. So there, there's, there's a constant, um, uh, you know, uh, constant rumble out of our industry to streamline things more. And, and we, we do see it happening. We've seen it happen over the last 10 years. It's never fast enough for, for our liking, but I, I certainly see that, uh, uh, there is an attitude towards towards uh, getting a lot of the the, the problematic issues uh, out of our way. Okay, I, I think you missed a chance there with Pickering to talk about a can-do attitude in, in Canada. That's a uranium joke, folks. Uh, nuclear, <laughs> um, I, Mike, with um, with with the market. So, so there's a there's a will and hopefully a way for nuclear and uranium um, politically, that narrative has changed. The, as you said, Chris, there's um, the, the retail audience, the, the every, you know, everyday people are now starting to talk about and read about um, nuclear as a solution, and it doesn't have that kind of um, pushback that it, want, it once did. Um, so let's, let's park that up. Let's talk about the current economic environment. Okay, Mark, it, it's tough out there. It's been tough out there for 10 years for uranium. Are there green shoots appearing? Will financing happen? Um, can small projects survive? Oh, no, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think the, the capital, I don't think, is the issue for the, you know, it's a small universe of companies, our, our, our universe, including all the explorers, et cetera, that have projects that look exciting and can one day, you know, meet the demand. It's, again, this sort of price signal response you need. I mean, there's certainly all the folks that have a real, uh, projects and things that are worth pursuing. I mean, they're they're all reasonably well funded. I don't think I don't think they have any issue getting funded. I mean, uranium is energy. It's joined to this bigger energy thematic in terms of capital. It's probably the strongest segment of the market, to be honest. You know, in my personal view, is coming out of this bear market. 
you know, that sector and maybe a few others are going to be the new leaders as opposed to the leadership from the last bull market. But it, you really need the utilities to kind of join the party because at the end of the day, and we talked about, you know, the legislation and this kind of thing, the utilities are, are very good at looking after their own interests and they really don't worry too much about the, whether the producers make money or don't make money or what the uranium price is. Their their effort has been entirely focused in the last 12 months, I would say, especially with this emergence of this conflict, has been on the enrichment piece because that's the vulnerability for the West is the, is, you know, Chris alluded to it earlier that, you know, the, the, the two worlds are coming apart and you better have a separate supply chain about how you're going to fuel all your own reactors and get conversion and enrichment. And the tightness in the market the tightness in the market um, really started in conversion and enrichment, and I think it's going to trickle down eventually to uranium. But the, the lobbying and stuff that, they, that they're doing over there is basically mostly de- derived towards things like enrichment at the moment. Yeah, and I think I think we're seeing definitely that the the to your point, Mark, is that the the fundamentals are still solid despite what's going on in the general markets right now. And and as much as as uranium companies haven't you know have suffered somewhat over the last month or so, I I think they've held stronger than most. And the money is available and has been available for the last year or two, which is which means we can all get back to work. And I think it's important to also understand that we, I mean, I'm in a very different business than Mark is. Right. So the value proposition to shareholders uh, at Alaramide is that is that a lot of the um, a lot of the risk points, the projects have been de-risked and they're now heading towards production. And that's that's one value proposition. Our value proposition is more is on the other end of the scale. We're, we're in the business of making discoveries. That's that's where our shareholders see their value. And we can only do that with availability of capital and capital becomes available when the general markets and, and, and the general sector becomes happy. So, um, you know, we're, we've got two different value propositions for our shareholders. And uh, um, right now, ours is, ours is enjoying the, what's going on in the markets as well. Yeah, to, uh, to go back to Mark's enrichment uh, comments, what, what I think people are losing or have lost in this is that the enrichment uh, underfeeding has, has basically had 20 million pounds of uranium coming coming in that doesn't come from a mine. It's a secondary supply. And, and so what we've seen since the, 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine is uh, the Western world enrichment is not over capacity. It's, it's, they're actually overfeeding now. So you're going to see that, that gap between primary mine supply or potential primary mine supply and demand growing, especially Western world. Because Russia doesn't export any of their uranium, they export their enriched uh, enrichment capabilities. China is self-sufficient, so there's only a handful of places in the world, Western world, that have enrichment. And and that's that. W- you're gonna see it trickle down to the uranium uh, explorers, developers, and producers. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Forty percent of enrichment. So it's it's a big it's a big chunk. Um, I don't think there are any sanctions on it yet, but that's that's a common. If there's a backup solution, I hope no one rushes into that decision. Um, just on just if you want to if you want to go there, then that's fine. It's going to go somewhere else. But um, in terms of the the demand supply fundamentals, we we've talked a lot over the last year about um, US. You might know a bit more about about this mark and probably you too, Ted, with um, S, S, uh, SMRs going into coal-powered fire stations, i.e. kind of a sort of plug-and-play, the infrastructure's there, why not? So the, the, the demand and delivery mechanisms are there, but 
what does what does that do on the pressure for supply? Do you does it does it make it easier in terms of the fact that the momentum is there and therefore the sentiment is there for money when you need it um, or, or not? When, when, what do you think, Mark? Well, that's a very interesting area, and you know, Ted and I were were both at WNA. Actually, we had a good chat there about various things. I think we probably talked about SMRs as well. And there was a very interesting panel at WNA about SNRs that included. Uh, a couple of the different entries that are that are sort of trying to be the leaders in the technology race, if you will. I, I look at it as kind of a shiny new object in the, in the space, which is which is helpful probably to get people to say, let's have another look at nuclear. Nuclear's in the conversation and everything else. The reality from a market reaction, price wise, and all this kind of thing to me is is something that is probably really a ten year out kind of thing, and then obviously it will affect market dynamics depending on what kind of reactor designs there are, whether you, whether you use the traditional low enriched fuel or higher enriched fuel, and they've got a long way to go because they've they've got to go through a whole licensing process. You've got competitive technologies; they all have to go through a licensing process before any of them are approved. And at the end of the day, as the folks that were involved in these projects were telling me, you know, at the end of the day, you're running a little mini nuke there. And so you have all those issues that go around that no matter what you do in terms of getting the capex down and the speed to market down. So I think it's a fascinating area. I think it's going to be you're going to hear a lot more about it. I think it's generally good for the business. But the real impact, honestly, is 10 years out to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think we are we're working at it. it it's it's helping the the dialogue around nuclear for sure. I mean, Ontario's got a uh, one going into presumably commercial use in a few years, um, but uh, it's it it is it's about the dialogue. People can understand this. It's something simple that that uh, you know the public can can grasp and say, okay, these things are smaller, neater, cheaper, easier, hopefully safer, um, and it, it helps it helps that dialogue along. The actual practicality of it um, maybe a little further out than people realize. But, but what is the thing that's going to get this going, right? We, we've had, since we've been talking, or we've come back into the nuclear and uh, uranium space, loads of catalyst points, starting with the Section 232, which Mark referred to earlier. And you know, and then then it then it was the um, the Russian suspension, the Russian suspension agreement. Then it was Sput coming in. Then it you know, it's just like a series of catalyst moments. People desperate to believe that there was something that was going to radically change the sector. It's an opaque space, which not too many people understand or have the data for. So what is the thing that's going to get this moving? Ted, what do you think? I think it's the uh, actually starting to publicize some of the uh, long-term contracts that people are negotiating that are off market. I, I can tell you that Cameco wouldn't turn on MacArthur River again, like they're doing right now at $48, $50 uranium. Um, that's, that's just reality. That was stated several times by my uh, hockey opponent, Tim Gitzel, uh, here in Saskatoon. Uh, so I think once the utilities and, 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 and uh, the veil gets lifted on some of these long-term contracts, you're going to see that the spot price is... Uh, uh, relatively irrelevant. Right. So, Mark, I'm going to come back to you because Chris made a point. You're all at you know, slightly, slightly different stages of evolution and you've got to play the market um, differently, right, to, to kind of be able to move forward. Um, for you, being, you know, US-centric, obviously you perhaps think that you've got an advantage over most 
most groups. But how does your company move forward? Because one of the quotes I remember when I was when I was, I was WNA two, we, we, we spoke to uh, utility there, and it's like they go, well, do you know what? Fifty percent of these juniors will never get into production. We are discounting that many. So, how do you stand out and go? We'll be just fine, and we're one of the fifty percent that will. Sure. Well, that I mean that that question you asked Ted was kind of a bifurcated question about what would get the market going. Well, it, what it's sort of what would make the company succeed, or, or as businesses, or what would make the stock succeed? Well, obviously, what makes the stock succeed? Everybody's in the you know, this has been a thing that's been financed by hot money a lot, you know, and when it's hot, it's really hot, which is why hedge funds and people like it. So you, as much as the term market really does matter to the business side of things, the spot market's kind of what makes the stocks go. And so that'll be what really sends the stocks rocking again will be when you get that market visible and moving. What gets the business going, though, is, is what Ted said. You really need that stability of price around, let's say, $50 as a floor, which we don't have yet. I mean, that's the reality today is we we thought we had it, ran up 65, pulled back. And now everybody's scratching their heads and wondering, you know, where are we going from here? But as businesses, no, I think at 50 bucks, people like us that have a thing that should be brought to market. Like ISR, the benefit of it, especially smaller projects, let's say they started a million pounds a year. At fifty dollars, there you, you better be able to bring your project to market, and you should make money, and you should be a real business like other businesses. And you know, the thing that got the oil stocks jazzed up is people realized how what what a good business they were when prices were high, and and suddenly these companies that were bankrupt on paper twelve months ago are suddenly paying special dividends. So they are real businesses at the end of the day. That we we haven't had a cycle in a long time where you had new entrants that came in, other than Kaz Adam Prom, which obviously, which by the way, if you look at that. Spectacular business, and what we need is a few of these North American ones that enlisted companies in our sector to come along and, and demonstrate that they too are great businesses. And I think that can happen in the right price environment. But but don't you need in in the U.S. some kind of roll up because there's lots of small projects, no big ones, you know, benefiting from you know scale. Is, do, you, do you expect there will be M and I mean, do, do you want to do it? Do you want to be part of that, or do you think you got to look after your own business? Well, I mean, the, the, the roll up, once you get past two projects, I mean, I think the thing that, that you want, I mean, we've always said you want to build a company that's attractive to the utilities and you need diversified security supply so that they know that they make a contract with you. They don't care which mine it came from. But realistically, a developer is not going to develop two things at once, even if they had the world's greatest portfolio. So once you get probably beyond a pipeline of three or four projects, you know, to me, the roll up thing from a business standpoint starts to make less sense. So you'd have to be doing M&A for a different reason than that. You know, whether it's to get bigger because you want market cap for passive flows and things like that. But once you get beyond the ETFs, you're basically into things like uh, TSX indexes, ASX indexes, things like that. So yeah, there's some, there's some, that does make some sense, but I think at the end of the day, what we really need to see is some of these things get going and they are going now there's there's a couple of projects now that have been around a while that they're going back into production they're financed they're on track they're going to deliver uranium i think in 24. so yeah i think as you get more into that and those companies become attractive acquirers because they de-risk their thing all the way to the point where you can say that hey your project works the M and A thing at that point gets more interesting. Yeah, well, I think, I think the, the the scale, the M and A thing, it, it would probably bring back a conversation which was their um, accusation against Kazakhstan from that they were controlling the price downwards. 
Um, I, I've just we, we've been prodding to sort of conversations recently about well, how do you how do you actually get this so you can control the price upwards because the utilities seem to have a well, as a buyer's market has been for a long time. Um, how do you, how do you change that? I'm not sure anyone's got an answer. Um, for that, Chris, if we if we look at you, Chris, you, you've got you've got a different game afoot here. This is exploration, high risk, high return. Um, you've got to be able to ra- it's r- raise money, drill, repeat, right? Repeat, step and repeat. Um, that, that's the name of the game for you. But what's happening there in the Athabasca Basin? Now you're seeing a lot of new entrants come in here. Perhaps you know, steal, cannibalizing a lot of your um, potential investors. Um, are they doing the right way? Well, I, I don't think they're necessarily cannibalizing all the investors. Uh, they do they do muddle up the market a bit. I mean, our, our objective, as I mentioned before, is not to produce and sell uranium at the end of the day. Our job is to find uranium and and let let uh, you know the the marks of the world actually determine whether they can haul it out of the ground and, and make money on that point. And you know, you look back on the last four resources that were identified in the basin, and they're you know delivering ten times return or a hundred time return in many in one case and close to five hundred. But we're in a different sector of the market, so we are you know we've got a different value proposition. All the people that made money on next gen after their discovery. They're not shareholders anymore. They made a lot of money and they went away and they've done other things. They didn't weren't going to hang around for ten years and wait for uh, to see how they made out as a mine. Um, and and that's so we are, we are in a different business. And I think one of the things that we do see kind of confuses the market a bit is uh, first of all we're all talking about the same fundamentals. So you can you can confuse an explorer with a developer and think you're making the same bet, but you're not. And then the other thing is we've got explorers running around out there talking as though they are developers, um, you know, before they've uh, even uh, got a deposit under their belt. They're talking about uh, you know how they're going to process it and uh, and the metallurgy, etc. So that confuses the market up a bit. I think um, for us, it's it's making it clear that we are an exploration company. We have a mandate to maximize the likelihood of a of a uh, of a discovery because that's that's what we're in the business to do and uh, those are the boxes that that people should be looking at when they're when they're looking at explorers which are different boxes to look at than if you're looking at a developer um, fair, fair point. I mean, Ted, just just for you. I mean, uranium is a byproduct for you almost in in the, in the sense. Sorry, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's not the same deposit, but it's it's a byproduct in the sense that lithium is the, where the value sits for your company. Claystone Lithium in Nevada, next door to Tesla's Giga factory, and you've also got lithium down in Peru as well. That seems to be where the value is is uh, being a, is accretive to you. Uranium, not so much. So how, how do you play this market? Do you look to spin that out? Do you want to retain control of that? How do you time the market? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We're certainly our, our Makassani project, uranium project is, is lost inside American lithium. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in the process of, of really thinking hard about spinning it out, retaining some control, obviously, but but uh, you know, return of capital to our shareholders, this sort of model, um, and let it fly on its own. It's uh, because it is a great project, but uh, as you well state, it's uh, it's an order of magnitude smaller than the uh, the lithium value proposition that, that that we have in American lithium with our two two uh, Americas projects. But uh, you know, it's it's interesting because. Once people start understanding 
Makassani, our project. Um, it's not all about grade. We have a low grade deposit. It's about economics. And we have a five-year-old study that, that used $50 uranium as its pricing. And, 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 it, and it's incredibly economic. Now, the price has gone south, but now guess where it is? It's 50 bucks again. And at the time we put it out, everybody was using 65 as their base price. And, and guess what? Uh, a PFS just came out last week. They were using $65. Now people think it's going to be there. We don't need $65 for that project to sink. So. Well, that, that, that's we'll that's, 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 that's a conversation for another day because I, 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 we're doing a series called Low Grade is King <laughs> because it ain't just about gray. There's a bunch of other variables which we use for modeling and uh, that, that would be a fantastic conversation if you come and join us on, on, on that one. Um, I'm just going to say, I've, I've got to ask um, um, Chris, I did ask it of Mark, but I, I didn't get uh, Ted and Chris a chance to answer this. In, ter in terms of the the big catalyst moments, is this just purely in the hands of the utilities and when they decide that they can't eke out any more margin and they're going to have to place big contracts? And you're an explorer, so in a very meaningful way, you, you're, you're kind of unbiased in this. But So can, can you give us your unbiased view of that? Well, I think I think back to a point that Ted made earlier, the problem is this is an opaque market. I mean, what, what would ever prompt um, you know, Cameco to start putting out their long-term prices. They don't have to, and they have no, no upside in doing so. So the fact is, we, you know, the market really can't know, and it won't be until it trickles down into some of the smaller uh, contracts that are being put out to tender that, that we're going to start hearing what those prices really are. Um, so it, it's, um, you know, we, we, don't get, we don't get to get ahead of it. We only hear it in hindsight is when, when this stuff is moving. So it, it's tough. I, you know, I, maybe I don't have an answer as to what's the exact catalyst. I mean, it's, um, all we really can watch is the spot. That's the only thing that's made available to us for the most part. Um, we see the markets react to that every time the spot, um, uh, you know, quivers a bit. Uh, the equities all take a run and then they, and then uh, when it doesn't hockey stick, they kind of get tired for a little while again. And, uh, you know, I think, I think this is going to be a more kinder and gentler rise than certainly we saw 15 years ago when, uh, when things just kind of hockey stick and went off the roof. Because I think the, the, the spot price now is being driven, particularly with, with, uh, with, with the Sprott Fund buying into the spot market. It's, it's, become, um, it, it's become more of a, a real, a real in, somewhat indication of supply and demand as opposed to, you know, a hedge fund playing around with, with the spot price like it might have been 15 years ago. So um, I, think, I think it's just going to be a, a, you know, a calmer rise as, as uranium becomes, uh, you know, the balance between supply and demand kind of uh, even out and, uh, and, and it, will, it will, you know, move forward. I don't think we're going to see that rocket take off like it did last see, time. I see Chris finally mentioned the 800-pound gorilla called Sprott. So <laughs> I would sort of take the other side of that and say, you know, in terms of catalyst, we do have someone whose interests are very aligned with the spot price going up. And lo and behold, they have ways to sort of make it go up a little bit. And so the market is not quite as, as uh, unaffected as you might expect. And so the other thing that we, it's worth mentioning every time you tell anybody about the, our little sector is the whole thing, after we had a rally and everything tripled, we got to 35 billion of market cap. So it's a sector that can get muscled around pretty easily by real money. 
And, and I think that's one of the attractive things that brings the hot money to it. So I think there's a bunch of catalysts, whether they directly impact on the spot price or not right away, that, that we have ahead of us. I mean, one of the obvious ones is the Russians so far have not played the nuclear power card. And, you know, I don't see them sanctioning themselves, but could the West sanction Russian uranium and just do another, blow another bullet hole in their other foot? They could. And and then the other thing that I think that's sitting out there waiting to happen, I think it affects your, your backyard, is that, you know, if, if the next gen thing gets put to bed in terms of how that's going to come out of the ground and, OK, we've dealt with the fact that there's 20 million pounds coming at us sometime in the next five or 10 years and then the market realizes we're still short. Then I think people are really going to focus on these fundamentals about where is all this stuff going to come from in the future. And I'm, I'm very bullish on Greenfield for that reason, because I, I think all the projects we're talking about, like, you know, Ted's project, our projects, the stuff that's going to market now, these are all legacy things that were found a long time ago. You, you know, you, it's like the oil business. You better be drilling or you're going to be, you know, you're, you, everything, everything starts running down the day you open the mine, right? So yeah, and on, on the fast rise of the prices that we saw back in the, uh you know, 15 years ago, it, it, it really, <laughs> there were a lot of dead dog projects. That I call them zombies because they come back to life. They were always dead. They should stay dead, but they, they didn't. And they, they took a lot of, I guess, good money with them. Um, what present what company are, excluded, right, Ted? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but what, what you're seeing is the serious people who, who maintain their, 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 their track, through the low price environment, doing what you could to uh, survive and, and, and advance the project, however you did it. Um, there, companies like ours, I mean, the, the collective us, <laughs> um, we're going to benefit from, uh, from this slow, steady price rise that, that seems to be happening. Yeah. As the utilities, utility uh, individual said to me, 50% of these companies will not ever produce a pound out of the ground. Um, happened, happened before. I like that. Zombie projects. Brilliant. We like that. Um, <laughs> and, and there's lots of places we could go around around price, around, you know, whether Sput has or has not been a, a good thing for the sector and, you know, and what, what it's done there. Um, but we are out of time. So because I want to leave each of you with a couple of minutes to sell your own companies. I think these are three excellent companies at different stages of, of evolution. Um, people should be looking at this. If, certainly if you're a contrarian investor, get in now. Um, get one while you can. Um, so Mark, give us two minutes on you. Why investors should be investing in your company? Well, I think the big advantage with Laramat is we're, you know, we're very late stage. We're going to be a prime beneficiary, I think, when we get this political tailwind about actually getting projects built. We're moving as fast as we can to get them both in a shape where they're effectively as close to shovel ready as possible. And they're, and they're projects of scale. So we are very attractive, I think, to utilities when we go out looking for utility contracts. I mean, our one project in the United States, we basically could probably fund that out of the equity market to production. So we're on the process of just trying to get the final permit and, and, and then, and then, you know, get that project ready to go. It probably needs $50. Our Australian project needs political will and probably a little higher price, but it's definitely going to happen one day. It's one of the more prominent projects of scale out there. Um, and we have been around a long time and I think people kind of, you know, people know what they're getting and they know we're committed to the space and you know, the insiders are big owners. We eat our own cooking and uh, you know, I'm very bullish on the, on the space. And I think it's a good time to get in. We've had a big correction. We're in kind of a nine month correction. This, like, as I said earlier, the 
the whole sector triple off the bottom as the bear market finally did end. And then we've had a big pullback. Everything fell in half. And I think it's a pretty interesting time because unless you think the energy crisis is over, I think you want a little, uh, a little uranium in your portfolio. For sure. Ted, give us your view of your company's uh, key selling points. Okay, so uh, as far as the Makassani uranium and the potential to spin it out, you know, we have a large project, over 124 million pounds of resources. And, uh, and, and using 50 bucks, we thought we could produce uranium for $17 a pound. And, and, and that's cash costs, including royalties. So incredibly economic outside of the best Athabasca projects, Kazakhstan and some ISR in the States. There, there's no other better better projects. So uh, it's, it's going to be good. And once we, once we answer the, the jurisdictional question of Peru and, and its support of uranium, uh, not just with words, but with the government actions, um, we, we, that'll be a re- really good catalyst for us. And Chris, go and sell the Athabasca Basin as if it needs to. <laughs> so easy. No, it's, uh, well, I know. Or again, take us out yeah. with a song, whatever. <laughs> I don't mind. Well, you know, it, it's my point earlier. You know, it's our, it, it's our value proposition that we have to uh, maximize, the li- maximize the likelihood of a, of, a, of, a, uh, of a discovery. And I think we're doing that, A, by being in the, the best jurisdiction on the planet, as we keep pointing out. Um, the fact that we have 12 projects across the basin, all of them, highly active right now, thanks to the, uh, the, the funding that's available through the markets. And uh, we have uh, two joint ventures with two of the largest producers on the planet, Cameco and Arano. Uh, we operate those projects and we, we get their continued support financially and technically. And, uh, and you know, we've, uh, we've done the hard work. You know, all these projects have been moved along, either protected or gathered up uh, during, uh, during the downtime. And we're not, we're not picking up the leftovers. So, um, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're serious about what we do, and I think uh, uh, we're in a good position to uh, to make that next big hit. Brilliant, gentlemen. So, Mark Henderson, President CEO of Laramide, uh, Laramide Resources, Ted O'Connor, EVP of American Lithium, and Chris Forstad, President CEO of PurePoint Uranium. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And to you contrarian investors listening, watching this, have a look at these companies. Uh, you couldn't do much better.